And now, if you're able, please stand for a reading from John, from God's precious word. John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, and they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, we, we give you thanks once again for your word. We give you thanks once again that you draw near to us, that whenever your word is read, whenever we hear it, you yourself, the God of the universe, are choosing to speak to us. 
And Father, as we now continue to seek over these next minutes to listen, we pray that you would help us to hear what you want us to hear, that we might be changed, that we might be made more and more what you call us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So since Easter, we have been considering what is sometimes referred to as the Upper Room Discourse, um, John 13, 17. Um, it starts at the very beginning, John 13, that Jesus, telling us that Jesus knows what is about to happen. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, He is going to the cross, which is a, a remarkable thing to think that, you know, he, he knows. He knows what He is facing. He knows that He's about to die. And with that knowledge... He then gathers his disciples around and speaks to them. And what we are now seeing as we come near to an end, we have one more week where we'll be looking at this as well, is that at the very end of this time of Jesus speaking and preparing, he prays. And one of the most extraordinary things, and maybe you noticed this, about this prayer is that even though it begins where we began with, with him praying specifically for his disciples, that's, that's not where it ends do you notice verse 20? Jesus says, I don't just pray for these, the, the disciples that are right here with me right now, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So in other words, if you are someone who has heard God's word, heard the New Testament, heard the gospel, and you have come to believe, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for you. Right before he goes to the cross, Jesus was thinking about you, and he prayed for you. And I want us to consider what it is that he was praying. There, there is, um, as I said, we'll be spending two weeks about this, uh, two weeks thinking about this remarkable prayer that Jesus prays. This morning, I want us to focus on what seems to be central to this prayer Perhaps you notice there's, there's a word that's just repeated again and again throughout this passage, and that is world. Jesus is praying specifically about his relationship, our, our relationship, that is the church's relationship to the world. So, so maybe you notice, I'll just point out a few. Verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Or if you skip down to verse 14, the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. 15, I do not ask you take them out of the world. Or 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And then verse 18, as you sent me into the world. So do you hear that again and again? It's talking about, about our relationship. He's praying about the way that you and I, the church, relates to the world. And so this morning, I want us just to kind of consider two aspects of this. Try to figure out a little bit why Jesus prays this. And then what Jesus is praying for us in this. So first, why? And let, let's begin with just a simple observation. Jesus is praying for His church because He cares about His church. That is, even though we're saying He prays for anyone who comes to believe, notice it's not just a bunch of individuals that Jesus is praying for. On, on a couple of different occasions, He prays, for example, in verse 20, 22, that they may be one. Now, individuals can't be one. That, that is only something that Jesus prays for a community. He is praying not just for individuals, but for his church. And what we see, if this is what Jesus is thinking about right before he dies, if he is praying for his church, then clearly he cares deeply 
about his church. I raise this because it's increasingly common that people, I think, are saying more and more, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I admire Jesus, I love Jesus, I am committed to Jesus. But the whole religious establishment thing, I'm kind of done with. And honestly, we can, I can understand, you probably can understand why that is how some people respond. Most likely, most, if not all of us, either have been hurt significantly in some way by the church, or we know someone who has. Maybe it was some pastor who abused their power in really terrible ways, or, or displayed a kind of hypocrisy that was so disillusioning. Or maybe it wasn't a pastor, maybe it was just another church member who just betrayed, whether through insensitivity or through falsehood or whatever, but it can be brutal at times. And and it's understandable that some people say, you know what, I really don't think this church thing is helping my relationship with Jesus. I, I think I'm just going to step away and focus on me relating to Jesus and loving him. But I hope you see from the way Jesus is praying that the, the, the answer to the brokenness of the church is not to give up on the church. Jesus has no false understanding of the church that he is praying for. He, he knows who it is that he's praying for. In fact, if you think about, if you know the, the book of Revelation, for, for two chapters, Jesus writes letters to these churches, and he exposes their sin, <coughs> and he speaks very critically of them, and that, that is part of the way he loves. And, and for us to love the church, that also involves us being honest with our failings and seeking to reform. But Jesus never gives up on the church. He, he not only prays for his church, he lays down his life because he loves church. And those who love him are called to do the same. So first thing we notice, he's praying because he cares deeply about the church. But when it comes to specifically him praying for our church, the church's relationship to the world, he's praying for this because he knows that as he leaves, the church is about to experience a complicated relationship to the world. Now, it's probably good for just to pause and talk about what we mean by world, because I think oftentimes when we use the word world, we just think about, you know, the whole world, as in like, you know, like the trees and everything and all of creation. But when Jesus is talking about the world, it's not so much about creation, but about, I suppose you could say, a specific culture. That is, the culture of humanity as we are disconnected from God. Maybe you might remember a couple weeks ago, we were talking about how how this universe at the very heart of it is a Trinitarian God of love. And you and I were made to have at the very heart of our lives this Trinitarian God of love. But, but because of the way that sin has just kind of twisted us, it has become the human default to try to move God out of the center of our lives and make something else central. It could be just our own self, that it's just following our own heart, trusting in ourselves. It could be other people. We make other people the most important thing. It could be whatever. But there is some shared project that we could say that humanity has of saying we are not going to have the true God at the center of our lives, but something else will be. And, and that kind of culture of humanity, of moving God away and moving something in, that's what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the world. So what we have been seeing in these last few weeks when we're talking about like some of these ideas of being born again is that, that when we come to, to believe in Jesus, when we come to know the triune God and, 
and experience just the miraculous reality that we are loved by this God, a dramatic change takes place. It's not just about our beliefs, although that happens. It's not even about even some of the things we do, but our very identity is shifted because now suddenly again, the triune God of love is at the very center of our lives, and that changes everything. And when that happens, that puts us out of step in a fairly uncomfortable way with the world around us. Let me use an illustration to try to start thinking about how this is. Um, Imagine a family that are deeply, passionately political. Let's, Let's say they are passionate Republican Trump supporters, although if in your mind it's easier to go the other way and say they're passionate Democrats, the illustration works the same. But imagine, I mean, so they're regularly, you know, just devouring the news, always wanting to know what's going on, talking over dinner, and regularly speaking of their concern about some of the decisions that that Biden has been making, and and, and all of the things going on. And and every time they talk about something related to Democrats, it's clear that the Democrats are kind of the enemy. They're the bad guys. And it's something that matters deeply to them. Now, imagine one of the sons starts dating someone who seems a little suspect to the family. And then they they hear rumors that he might have even attended a political rally, and it wasn't anyone with a MAGA hat there at that rally. And then one day he shows up at the table with a Biden-Harris t-shirt, and they realize he has become a Democrat. Now, we kind of laugh, but we we know that this kind of dynamic happens, and we actually know how complicated it can become because people can care deeply about it, and you can imagine within this family just the complexity. Something that so deeply matters to a family has just been rejected by one of their own. What do they do with him? And imagine from the perspective of the son, now, now the son knows that he is completely out of step with what his family cares about politically. How does he navigate that? And what, our, what Jesus is, is saying here is that something like this, except far deeper, has taken place whenever you or I comes to trust in Jesus and know Him. Because, because when we come to know Jesus and trust in Him, we have turned away and rejected from the very life that once was ours. By saying that whole project of trying to do things without God is wrong And now God is at the center of my life, and I trust in Jesus. And so what we are doing is we are saying no, not just in belief, but to our very identity. And meanwhile, the world around us is saying no to the very thing that is most important to us. And so the problem goes deep. There can be a deep division, a deep tension. It it can happen in, in all sorts of different cultures. If you if one were to grow up in a very collectivistic culture where kind of the, the family and the community are more central than the individual, um, it can happen. So what happens when someone who grows up in that culture comes to believe in Jesus? Now they have a community that matters more. They have an allegiance to the triune God that is more important than even allegiance to family or tribe or community. And when that happens and when the family comes to know it, they can despise. If you think that's an exaggeration, I I know of 
um, a family, uh, sorry, a couple friends of mine who grew up in a, in a Muslim family that was heavily kind of collectivistic, where you care for the family above the needs of the individual, and when they became a Christian, they were cast out and hated and rejected. On the other hand, the same kind of tension can happen if you grew up in an individualistic society like ours. In the individualistic society, what matters most is not just our allegiance to family, but our allegiance to our own inner desires and passions. There is there's this kind of unwritten rule that the one thing that you must do is be faithful to what you want. And what happens when we come to know Jesus and believe in Him? I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul and life and in death, to Jesus Christ. Now it's no longer about just following my desires. I don't always get to do what I want because what I want is not always what Jesus wants. And so that means the way that I spend money, the way that I spend life, the way that I express my desires is not just about me. And also, I believe that that's the case for others as well. And in different generations, this becomes controversial in different ways. Right now, we know that the way that this most becomes controversial is when it comes to sexuality and what we choose to do with ourselves in that regard. But there's always something that shows that we are saying that what matters most to this culture and this world is not what is most important, and that will always cause some degree of opposition. I mean, Jesus says it plainly in verse 14, when he says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Excuse me, that is the complicated relationship that Jesus is describing here. And that is his reason for praying for us. He loves his church. He knows that it's going to be difficult and complicated for us. So what does he pray? That's the second part of what I want to consider. And to try to summarize here, what Jesus prays for us in our relationship to the church, sorry, our relationship, that is the church's relationship to the world, is that we would live on the razor's edge. That is, by the way, a a phrase that I picked up from Tim Keller. Some of you maybe have even seen this. Uh, A few weeks before he died, he kind of recorded for Redeemer, the church that he was a pastor of for decades, kind of his what would become his last words of advice. It was was meant to kind of give advice for, here's what I long for you for the next decade as a church. And, And what he said is, my longing for you, and it, it was based, he was, he was using Scripture to kind of speak to this, is to live on the razor's edge. And that is, he meant, I want you to not fall in the two mistakes that churches regularly fall in, either assimilating and becoming just like everyone, or disengaging and removing yourself from everyone. But instead, I want you to both maintain your identity and engage with the world around you. That's, that's the razor's edge. And when... when, when when Tim Keller was, was saying that, he was simply, if we see this, reflecting what Jesus himself prays for the church. See, it's true. If we know church history, we will know that those are the two most common mistakes or pathways that churches can make in response to this complicated relationship we're talking about between the church and the world. So, some, some churches seek and maybe trying to connect to the world better, they, they try to become, I suppose you could say, more normal. So you might know that some of the mainline churches throughout the last century has, has kind of sought to adjust some of what it teaches to make it less offensive. 
So, so Jesus might not be the only way. We'll, we'll be open to others. Maybe when the Bible writers were writing, they were writing for that day and age, but they didn't understand the way that sexuality has changed. There's multiple ways where the Bible, where, where the teaching would be modified to try to become more like the community around them. On the other hand, I suppose you could say more conservative churches, rather than maintain, changing their teaching, would sometimes try to change their style. So make the church feel more like a mall with, with a coffee shop inside of it. Make, make the church service feel more like a rock concert. Make the sermon feel more like a TED Talk. We're trying to make it so that we don't feel quite as strange to you. But here's the problem. In both of the situations, they are losing the very identity of who they are in Jesus. On the other hand, you can have some who see that danger and, and see the danger of losing and assimilating, losing their identity and assimilating, to say, we're not going to do that, so we are going to walk as far away as we can from anything that might make us do that. We will, we will kind of remove ourselves. We will only associate with people who agree with us. We will we'll only watch Christian movies and hire the Christian plumber and only be with Christians because that way we'll make sure that we don't lose who we are, but in the process you completely disengage and choose not to love the world, but just leave the world to itself. But Jesus, when He prays, prays for neither of these. He prays for His church that we would be on the razor's edge neither assimilating nor disengaging, but holding our identity and loving the world around us. So, on one hand, we see verse 11, as he says, I'm no longer in the world, they are in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Now, as, as Nick said previously, that idea of being in the name of the Trinitarian God is, is an identity statement. It is who, who defines us. It is, it is what makes us what we are. So when Jesus is saying, keep them in your name, he's saying, protect them so that they do not lose who they are in us. Because Jesus knows it's going to be hard. Jesus knows that we're going to have a lot of people confused with us when we, we set some boundaries on the sports travel teams that we or our kids participate in so that sometimes we feel like or they feel like we're letting them down when we're not always able to be there in a Sunday morning baseball game. We feel the tension when we seek to love people but we cannot say we agree or affirm some of their lifestyle choices and it's seen as hatred and and just so close-minded. We feel the difficulty when we desire to share the hope that we have in Jesus, but that very hope seems so weak and ridiculous to other people. And Jesus knows. He knows that this is hard. So He prays, keep them, guard them, protect them. As they are tempted, as they are wondering if they're wrong, as they're maybe inclined maybe just to let go of it, Lord, hold on to them and keep them strange. In fact, he doesn't just say keep them different. Verse 16, notice what he says. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. The word sanctify means set apart. It means to make different. In other words, Jesus isn't just saying keep them. He's saying make them even stranger. Make them so changed 
by the truth, by the word that I speak to them, that it's not just beliefs, it's not even whether they sleep around or whether they swear, it's everything. The way that they approach their work, the, the habits that they have in their families, the way that they use their money, the way that they use their time, the way that they dream, may everything be changed. Father, make them strange like I am strange. Keep them. Do not allow them to assimilate. Yet on the other hand, as Jesus is praying for his church to be distinctive, he also, notice, pray, prays or says in verse 15, they are not, he, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Which is an important thing for us to hear because I think sometimes I do not ask for you to take them out of the world is something that we can forget. There's a book um, by an author by the name of Ayn Rand called Atlas Shrugged. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. In my opinion, it's not actually a fantastic book. But it is a book that's been highly influential. It's oftentimes discussed, especially amongst libertarians, like it it's kind of have a, has a political angle to it. But it's not really for the politics, and I'm going to use this as an illustration, but, but to kind of set things up, within this book, there's kind of um, two categories of people, you might say. There, there are, I suppose you can say, the entrepreneur successes, people who through risk-taking and through genius and hard work and brilliance have made massive businesses and success for themselves, like steelmaking industry, railroad building. If you want to kind of modernize it, you can think of like these are the Jeff Bezoses and Elon Musks. But not just them, even people who in smaller ways are these, these people who work and succeed. That's one group. And then you have the rest of society in this book who kind of resent, even as they are benefiting from the fruits of their labor. They resent that these people get so much success. They resent that these people are getting so much money, and so they, they seek to bring about laws through taxation and through different regulations that just makes it almost impossible for these entrepreneurs to do their job. So that in this story, what you have at a certain point, you start seeing these big business people, the people who are so successful, just kind of disappearing. One after another, they resign from their positions, and people don't know where they have gone. And at the risk of spoiling the book, at a certain point, you realize that what's happened is they've all kind of found this community in the middle of nowhere that no one else knows where it is, and they've decided, we're just going to start on our own and do our own thing and let the world just fall apart without the efforts that we're bringing while we build something new. And I want to suggest that I actually think that that is sometimes the model that Christians operate with as we think about our relationship to the world. The world doesn't want what we have to offer. The world is frustrating, they keep on rejecting us. So fine, if that's how they're going to be, we can just step back and be the church together. We can enjoy the love that God has given us for each other. We can enjoy the life that God has called us to and the wisdom for each other. And we honestly can just let the world fall apart. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. In fact, he says something even more significant. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now just think about this for a moment. As you have sent me into the world, think about how has the Father sent the Son into the world? Or maybe more particularly, why 
did the Father send the Son into the world? Was it to expose the world's sin and to condemn it and to bring it down? No, Jesus very explicitly in chapter 3 says the very opposite. The Son, Father did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. When, when, when the Father sent the Son who willingly went on our behalf, He sent Him into a world that would hate Him so that He might save that world. And so when Jesus says, as the Father sent me into the world, so I'm sending the church into the world, what He's saying is in the very same way, I am sending you, church, into a community, into a world that will often reject you. And yet I am sending you to love. I'm sending you to seek its salvation, even if at times they just want to do nothing but give you the stiff arm or even show cruelty at times. This is why, by the way, we are doing things like the farmer's market or being there in the Fourth of July parade or having people at the end of the summer come for a block party because this is the community that God has sent us to. This is why we spend time talking about Spiritual conversations and how with the friends and neighbors that God has put in our pathway, we can seek to talk to them about these things of extraordinary importance. Because these are the people that God has sent us to. This is why with the bridge we seek to care for ex-cons and with world relief we seek to care for the refugee. Because this is the world that God has sent us to. Because even as Jesus was sent into the world, so he sends us, his church, into the world for its good and salvation. This, do you see the, the, the razor's edge that we see here? On one hand, Jesus calls us to be strange, to be extraordinarily strange, to be changed by his word in every way, and yet he also calls us to love, to move towards the world. Jesus calls us to be strange, and he knows that will make us offensive at times. And yet, as we will see even next week in his prayer, that prayer includes an expectation that even as we are offensive, there is something about who we are through Jesus that can be compelling. It's a razor's edge, and, and we don't need to wonder if it's possible because all we need to do is look at Jesus himself to see that this is exactly who Jesus is. All of Jesus' life, he was nothing but who he is in the Father. He was distinctive, never being changed or moving himself to accommodate the world around him. And yet everything he ever did was in love for this world. At the very moment when he was most rejected, he was most loving on the cross. And this is what he calls us to Although that's not quite the right way of describing what we have here in this passage, is it? Yes, we are given in some ways instructions. This is who we're supposed to be. Yes, in some ways you can say this is a vision statement, that the way that the church is is to be both strange and yet strangely loving towards the world. But it's neither of those in the end, is it? What we have here is a prayer. It's a prayer from Jesus who knows with deep wisdom, the will of the Father. A prayer to the Father who delights in the Son and delights to give Him all things. Now, when we think about that, is there any doubt that God will answer this prayer? We've talked already about ways that the church 
at times has erred in either direction, falling into one mistake or another. But, but that's not the whole story. The, the whole story is that time after time, whenever the church forgets part of who it is, God will do something to bring it back. So if, if we go to, the, say, the 16th century, and, and what we see is the story of a church that has gotten so corrupted by a love for power and for wealth, God has been moved from the center. They have, in some ways, been assimilated into the world, and what does God do? He raises up some bullheaded, neurotic monk who nails some ideas to a door and unwittingly begins the Reformation. Or a couple hundred years later, as we see the church having more insularity and just focusing on itself and not being concerned about those who've never heard the gospel, God raises up William Carey and begins a missions movement where thousands spread throughout the world and many hear the gospel because of it. He he brings the church back as he answers his son's prayer. I believe, I don't think this is even that controversial, I believe that right now we are at a phase in church history, where, where we are struggling to figure out how to relate to the world, right? Things are shifting. We feel that keenly. There is a shifting in relationship between the church and culture around us. And, and I think churches are often getting confused and falling in one way or another. And one of the reasons, actually, I use that language from Tim Keller is I think Tim Keller and the ministry and Redeemer and the thinking that came from that is one of the ways that God is using to bring us back to help us to see the way forward, that there is a way where we can be both offensive to the world by maintaining truth and yet a way that we can love the world in a way that is obvious. And what I want to say is that very thing that God has been doing again and again throughout church history, He is doing here among us. In fact, it's my prayer that even this morning as we're hearing Jesus' prayer, He is doing that in us right now. That He, by His Spirit, is working in us both to make us more delightfully strange in Jesus and also to give us a deeper love and commitments to love the world around us. And my encouragement even right now for myself as well as for you is as we hear these words to respond in a time of reflection and prayer and confession in the confidence that we have a Savior who is praying for us and a God who will not rest until those prayers are answered. So let's even now respond and just spend some time allowing His Word to kind of reflect in our hearts, allowing us some chance to respond however we feel is appropriate, and then I'll lead us in a time of confession in a couple minutes' time. So would you please join with me in silent prayer?